precisely the same thing. In the book of Acts, you think of the day of Pentecost. It seems that the miracle has almost as much to do with the hearing as the speaking. Because you've got all the apostles speaking in tongues. And some of the people that are, are bystanders there hear the apostles speaking in their own native languages. Different native languages. And there's some people there that are present that they don't hear anything at all, just, just gibberish. Uh, it seems to them that maybe the apostles have just gotten into the wine a little bit early. Whereas in Corinthians, it seems to be some sort of ongoing sort of speech that doesn't correspond precisely to any language, unless there's maybe a few people that have a gift of interpreting what is said. But it doesn't seem to be something that the general population is able to understand as an earthly language. But it doesn't much matter. Paul says, if you're using this gift in whatever form, and you're not doing it in love, it doesn't matter. If you get up there and you can speak fluent French, even though you've never studied French, but you're just doing it to show off and be impressive, it doesn't matter. It amounts to nothing. You might as well be banging pot lids together. Same if you can get up and you can speak in this, this way that maybe it's the language of the angels in heaven, but you're just, again, doing it to show off or prove how spiritual you are. doesn't matter. doesn't accomplish anything. doesn't do any good. It's the same with the other gifts. If you have the gift of prophecy and you can understand and apply even the most difficult aspects of, of God's revealed truth, and you can speak in this compelling way so that it just grabs people. But again, you're just doing it to draw attention to yourself or put others down or prove a point, win an argument. You amount to nothing. If you have so much faith that you can do miraculous things, but you only do that to look impressive... You amount to nothing. If you would even lay down your life as a martyr, but you only do it to prove a point, then you gain nothing, Paul says. And if this is the case for those that might actually be exercising these gifts in s at least somewhat legitimately, how much worse is it going to be for those that aren't exercising them legitimately, but only in a, in a fraudulent manner to deceive others? So we might be able to say that love is always an action, maybe. But we can't say that any action, even a righteous one, is always loving. Paul says you can do plenty of actions, even those that would appear particularly good and righteous and noble. But if they're done for the wrong reasons, it doesn't count. So that's the first three verses. Then he moves on to say what love is, what love is not. In verses 4 to 7. Love is patient and love is kind. If you remember, those are two further uh, aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll get to in later sermons. That's probably important that this is the way Paul starts describing love. Love is patient. You might have heard something along these lines, either applied to God's love or even applied to our love, uh, human love for one another. Love accepts people where they're at, but it isn't willing to just leave people where they're at. That's true, right? To, to accept people where they're at, even if they're sinners, that is to extend Christian love, as the Lord does, to welcome all who would come, sinners though they might be. But to, to accept that, to leave people in that state of sin or immaturity or rebellion or even to celebrate that, that's not love. That's just enabling. However, love is patient. It doesn't demand that just people change overnight. It doesn't demand that people go from mess to Christian perfection 
in just one jump. The patience of love understands that people are on a journey of life maturity, of Christian maturity. And it isn't always characterized only by forward progress. It doesn't always happen at a constant speed. Sometimes the Lord does miraculously, seemingly, deliver people from certain sins, compulsions that they have. And we should celebrate when he does that. Other times, people walk these things out over a period of time. And we're called to be faithful, called to be patient. Love is kind. Now, we'd like to think that this ought to go without saying. Love is about wanting and working for what is best for the other or for others. And yet we know that our motives aren't always as pure as that. Friendships, even intimate relations, are sometimes, maybe even often, overcast by a a what's-in-it-for-me mentality. Attraction so often fades when there's significant challenge, when when there's sacrifice that's required for the needs of the other. Love does not envy. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. To love is to take delight in the success of others as though it were your own. Easy to say. Awfully hard to do, right? Awfully hard when you see someone else who seems to achieve success and you go, well, they didn't deserve that. Even harder to do when the success of others, maybe those closest to us, even depends on us making sacrifices so they can succeed. Love does not boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. does not insist on its own way. Again, this seems like it should go without saying. Now, to be honest and be fair, I think our, our culture has made some rather grievous area, errors in the opposite direction. You know, anymore, we've gotten to the point where simply to disagree with someone, to hold another opinion, to offer any sort of correction, no matter how humbly and and graciously, to challenge someone on views that they hold, is now seen almost as hatred. But as I said, love is not just giving people whatever they want or letting them do whatever they want. But it's not just insisting on your own way either. Yes, there might be times when love has to be tough. And thus, some people in our wider culture are going to see that not as love, even as the opposite. But that always needs to be conditioned with the first priority, that love is going after what is best for someone else. Not what makes me look good, proves me right, proves my point. Love bears all things, Paul says, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I don't believe that this means that if you love, you will just allow yourself to become a doormat. Again, that might just be enabling someone else's sinful behavior to continue on and become even deeper rooted in their lives. That's not something that's pleasing to God. That's not good. At the same time, I think we hear a lot these days about, maybe you've heard about this, you've got to cut the toxic people out of your life heard that, right? I'm sure we all have. Now, if by toxic we mean people who are just malevolent, cruel, unrepentant sinners who just go around trying to hurt you all the time and hurt others, then sure, even Jesus said there comes a point when the unrepentant sinner, you treat them like a heathen and a tax collector because they're just simply so stubbornly set on doing wickedness. Sure. That's meant as a last resort, however. 
We seem to live in a cultural moment where anyone who disagrees with us or challenges us or even pushes us to be better people, that can so easily be an occasion where we say that's hatred or oppression and we just we resent them for it. You know, we don't live in a world where everything is so clear-cut. I'm sure we can all think of situations in our own lives where we didn't like what somebody had to say to us. You know, they challenged us on something. Maybe we resented them for it. No, that's none of your business. You don't have a right to say that to me. And then later on, we realized, no, actually, I think that person was the only one who was brave enough to tell me the truth about what I needed to hear. That that was the person that was actually loving enough to do something for me that I wasn't willing to do for myself. And yes, sometimes, always, in fact, that other person is a sinner and doesn't get it 100% right, just like we are sinners and don't get it 100% right either. But if we love, then we want to focus on the goal of what's best for the other, on whole, restored relationships, always above the goal of, of personal vindication. I think even as we begin to move into the last section, we can see that this isn't just about romantic love. Despite the fact that it's read at weddings so frequently, Paul clearly has in mind the kind of love that extends to the whole faith community. He makes this point because at the end of the passage, he begins to circle back around to the exercise of the spiritual gifts again. And he says, even when prophecy is legitimate, it will pass away. Even when tongues are legitimate, they will cease. These gifts are valuable in the present age, but Paul indicates that there's a time coming when we won't need them anymore because everything will be perfected or completed. Now, some have read this as referring to the close of the apostolic age and the New Testament canon, and while I would want to affirm that God's revelation in Scripture is complete and is perfect— I could hardly agree that the age that we're living in is complete or perfect, or that in the present age, even with Scripture, we know fully, um, or we see face to face. It seems much more accurate to understand that Paul is speaking about God's eternal kingdom when he speaks about then and perfect. And thus, both we and the Corinthians are living in the now and the partial. And so Paul says, in the present time, these supernatural gifts, uh, what we might call sign gifts, they're needed. We need these things to validate the gospel and the Christian message. We need these things to help instruct the faithful, encourage one another. But even at their best, none of these gifts are foolproof. Not every prophetic message or even miraculous occurrence induces faith. Look at the ministry even of Jesus. He did all kinds of miracles. And then people just said, oh, he's doing those in the power of the devil. There were points in Jesus' ministry when God audibly, God himself audibly spoke from heaven. And some people just said, ah, I think it thundered. So if that's the the hard-heartedness of people when the Lord himself audibly speaks from heaven, what must be the case for any message that we would speak on God's behalf? Some people even tried to explain away the resurrection itself as just a case of unusual grave robbery. We could go on and on here. 
course, we could point out the fact that love isn't exactly always efficacious either. We've all loved people who didn't return that love. Sometimes that's in a, in a romantic setting. Sometimes, tragically, that's even in a, in a family setting. But love is, nevertheless, Paul says, categorically different. There will come a time in God's eternal kingdom when we won't need all of these other things, words of prophecy, grief counseling, evangelism even. Some of us who have spent the most time making our living in the here and now doing God's stuff are going to be out of a job in, in God's eternal kingdom because these things won't be needed anymore. But when we are with the Lord forever, we will not leave love behind. It will still be necessary. In fact, it will be perfected. Love is eternal, and love is primary. You know, think on this. As we look at the the difference between prophecy and tongues and the miraculous things versus love, we've kind of had a conversation ongoing between this and John's gospel, so we'll go there. It doesn't say that God so wanted to educate the world that he, he sent his son. It doesn't say that God so wanted to impress the world that he sent his one and only son. It says God so loved the world that he sent his son. Let's just maybe let that sink in a bit before we hatch any great plots about what we're going to do, how we're going to do great things for the Lord's kingdom or change the world for Jesus. So where do we get this love? Even, uh, even briefly. I mean, this could be a whole series. This could easily be three sermons or a whole sermon series. But even briefly, we've seen some important realities. We've seen what love is and is not. We've seen that love is primary and that it's even eternal. And we've observed that it's possible to do great things, or at least attempt to do great things for God without love, and have them just amount to nothing. So what do we do when we find that this kind of love, the, the kind of love we're called for, is lacking in our lives and lacking in our attempts to serve God and to love others. First step is to admit that it is missing. It necessarily is. Love as as great as this, even though it is the greatest of all the virtues and all the spiritual gifts, all the fruits of the Spirit, it's still imperfect because the age we live in is imperfect and we are imperfect because we're still tainted by the effects of sin, and we live in a fallen and broken world. Sin and selfishness is still a thing, and that struggle is still a thing. In fact, one of the primary ways that sin has been expressed is selfishness. The Latin phrase for this, which was made much of by the great reformer Martin Luther, is incurvatus in se, roughly translated bent in on itself. Right? It's th- that is, the Lord calls us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves and to love him before all other things, but we tend to look out for number one. The Lord calls us to use what he's given us, our resources and gifts and everything we have, to build up one another, to work for his kingdom, but we tend to use those things just to impress others more than help them. So what do we do when we find that the kind of love the Lord calls us to is just not there? Well, Perhaps by way of illustration, I will return to my original story. 
I determined that this camera was not working correctly because it lacked a part. A part was missing. And so even though I didn't know anything about camera repair, who cares, right? We have YouTube and Google now. So I figured, surely there must be a tutorial on how to, how to fix this somewhere. And lo and behold, there was. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to fix this. I'm going to remove the missing part from a camera I already have, which I don't use in automatic mode much anyhow. I'm going to extract that part, and I'm going to install it in this camera, and then it will work. I've never been to med school, but, but it's kind of like, I, I always imagine, what, what is it like? And I know some of you have, uh, to, to do a, a surgery for the first time, and, you know, you, you've you got somebody cut open there. Like, they could die. Uh, this was just a mechanical device. And there were a few tense moments with a double-zero Phillips screwdriver and a tiny pair of needle-nose pliers, but... I, got, I had the patients there laid side by side out on the kitchen counter and I took the part out of one and put it in the other and put it all back together and, and lo and behold, it worked. My camera works correctly. I don't know. Do we have... There we go. See, you see the before picture. It's all dark and you can hardly see anything. There's the after picture. Ran some tests. It worked. I sacrificed a portion of this one camera to make the other camera right. And I know it's kind of a cheesy little illustration, but I think there's something there. With the part missing in this camera, I could have gone shooting pictures all day. Maybe I would have gotten the occasional one that was okay just because a broken clock is right twice a day kind of thing. But the auto mode would not have ever become enabled. It would have not have just grown the part magically that it needed. It was missing. It was broken. The something missing had to be brought in from somewhere else and installed. And it's the same in our spiritual lives. The kind of love Paul is describing here is not just something that's magically going to appear there that we can produce in and of ourselves just by trying harder. Because the kind of love Paul is calling us to is, in fact, the love of our Lord Jesus. Just, just look, look at the Gospels. Remember the reading we had earlier? Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have loved you in this way, you should love one another. That whole John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all throughout those chapters there toward the end of John's Gospel, Jesus is going on again and again about, I give you this commandment that you must love one another as I have loved you. In the passage we heard earlier, it says Jesus loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the full. Think of all the rest of the Gospels and we see that Jesus was all of the sort of things and wasn't all the sort of things that Paul is describing in the middle portion of this passage in particular. Patient. Right? Remember that passage, the bruised reed he will not break. Kind, not seeking his own good. Not envious or boastful. Jesus did all he did perfectly from love, not from a desire to serve himself or look impressive. We might think of what Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 2, right, where Jesus emptied himself and humbled himself to the point of obedience of death, even death on a cross. Or what the writer of Hebrews says, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. The kind of love this passage is describing, the kind of love that Paul longs for us to have as a fruit of the Spirit, 
kind of love that fulfills the great commandments is Jesus' love. And we can only get it by transplantation. Right? This kind of love is foreign to us. We can only get it as a gift. But the good news of the gospel is that we can get it by a gift. It's available. That's the point. It's there for the asking. But how does this happen in real life? Right? We'll get there. We've called this series on the fruit of the Spirit, out of the orchard, to highlight the fact that the fruit of the Spirit doesn't just exist at the level of things that we often like to call spiritual, kind of hovering up here somewhere, being all mysterious. These different fruits or qualities or virtues are meant to shape and transform everything about the way we live as Christians. Let me be clear, that means the way that we live together together with one another, together in this community, together wherever we go, the fruit of the Spirit is meant to shape us. Remember the context of today's passage. Even though we often hear 1 Corinthians 13 read at weddings, Paul is really concerned about the life of his body, the church. The same with the list of the fruit of the Spirit themselves in, in Galatians. He's offering this contrast between the way the children of God live and the way the, the children of darkness live and that we should walk or live differently than those in the world. Remember I mentioned a couple weeks back when we began this series, the fruit of the Spirit aren't, aren't status markers by which we can kind of stand over here off by ourselves and kind of evaluate how good we are and how high we are up in some hierarchy in comparison with others. Rather, they are tools that God gives us to help us live together as his people, his family, his church. So let's conclude by having another look at that question of what is love actually? Is it actions? Is it feelings? What is it? And how do we know it when we see it? As I mentioned earlier, we sometimes hear it said, and probably mostly in our Christian culture, that love is a verb. And while that is true, Paul is clear that we can do plenty of good-seeming things, righteous-seeming things, but do them for the wrong reason, and therefore not do them in a loving way. Our secular culture, on the other hand, usually likes to emphasize that love is a feeling, and it evaluates that kind of feeling to the, the sole deciding factor of what is right and wrong. Well, if it feels good to you, if it feels loving, if it, usually that means if it feels easy, then that's what you should do. And if it doesn't feel good to you, then you shouldn't do it. I suppose there is some truth in that. You can do a nice thing for somebody, but if you hate them, that's not exactly doing it out of love. But we can see pretty clearly from this passage that actually acting in a loving way is frequently going to force us to choose things that maybe don't feel natural, that do not feel easy. We're going to have to say yes to things that feel unnatural if we're going to live in a loving way, and we're going to have to say no to things that do feel natural if we're going to live in a loving way. And it's absolutely true that we need Christ's love transplanted into us to really get this. But here's the thing. You know, unlike something mechanical, like a camera, or a washing machine, or a car engine, 
you don't just pull the broken part out and throw it away, put in a new part. I mean, it was a little scary to open up this camera, but it took about 15 minutes. The part was in. It worked perfectly. It worked correctly. Simple. Easy. It's a mechanical device. It's one little part. We're good to go. What God wants to do for us in Christ and by the Spirit, it's a little more complex than that. That's why Paul refers to this as the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit takes some time to grow. You don't just plant an apple core in the ground, come back the next day and have a 15-foot-tall apple tree loaded with apples. That takes a while to grow. It takes some tending. It takes some nurturing. It takes some care. That apple tree might grow, go through a season when you wonder if it's going to make it or not. It's not just swapping in and out a new part to have the kind of love of Jesus in our lives. Furthermore, unlike a, a mechanical object, we can cooperate or we can resist the work that God is doing in us by his spirit. The camera, it, it was just there. I took the screws out of it. It's fine. If you've ever done any kind of mechanical work, I mean, sometimes it feels like the thing has a mind of its own, but it does not. It is an inanimate object. It cannot actually put up conscious resistance to you. But we certainly can, right? We can resist what the Spirit is doing and grieve Him, as Scripture says, or we can cooperate with what the Scripture is doing and, and get where He wants us to go, usually with a lot less difficulty. So that's where I'd like to conclude. How, how do we cooperate with what the Spirit is doing in terms of growing the love of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives and not resist Him? Like many things in our lives, we can do it the easy way or the hard way. So how are we going to do this the easy way and see that growth? I know this is going to sound like a no-brainer, but first thing we probably need to do is pray for this kind of love. We need to pray. We need to ask the Lord to give us the kind of love that Jesus had, to let the love of Jesus take root in our souls and shine through us and work through us. Now, you ever heard that it's dangerous to pray for patience? Yeah, I think it's dangerous to pray for any of the fruits of the Spirit because usually the way the Lord begins to grow those in your life is to put you in situations that require them and then you, you, you have some options in terms of resisting or cooperating. You can either just kind of stubbornly resist. You can try to stubbornly just do it on your own. You can just check out and decide, I'm not even going to deal with this right now. Or you can pray and plead with the Lord that he gives you what you need in that challenging circumstance. We can cooperate or we can resist the Spirit's fruit-growing project in our lives. For some of us, this is going to mean praying for new opportunities to love neighbors, work colleagues, strangers. In any case, there will be people in our lives that we should pray for, that we can love. For others, it will mean continuing in those tough situations to pray for the grace, to pray for the love that we need to continue in them. And to have the love of Jesus more and more a reality in our lives. Remember, love is patient. The second thing we can do, if, if we're serious about taking step one, and we are praying that the Lord would give us that kind of love and show us that, to cultivate an attitude of sensitivity to the opportunities the Spirit sends our way. There's no point praying for 
God to grow the fruit of the Spirit in terms of love in our lives if we're not willing to actually take the opportunities he sends our way, right? You know, if we pray, God's answer might look like, here's an opportunity. And if we're just like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Well, that's going to be kind of a dead end to what God's trying to do. Do you ever have those, those kind of half-formed little thoughts that kind of go through your mind sometimes? Like maybe you should do a thing, but then you ignore that. And it never really becomes a fully formed thought. You just kind of ignore that and carry on with what you were doing. Maybe just think of some small things, you know? Picking the laundry up off the floor. Not saying that complainy thing you were about to say. You ever have that thought like, maybe I should just keep my mouth shut, but then you just blah, 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 complain, complain, or say something gossipy or something you know you shouldn't. But you kind of had that little half-formed thought of conviction there just before you said it. Or, you know, maybe it's actually asking a follow-up question. When you see somebody in the hallway or on the street, you ask them how they're doing, they're like, oh, fine. And, yeah, maybe I should, no, nah, I just keep on walking. We all have those kind of half-formed thoughts. Perhaps it's as simple as looking up when you're walking. You, you take a stretch break, get up from your desk or your work, and you walk around. Instead of walking around like this with your eyes on your phone, look up. Maybe the Lord wants to show you somebody you should care for, somebody you should pray with, somebody you should do some kind thing for. You won't see it if you're just going like this all the time, and you might walk into something too. That's bad. Maybe, maybe you know somebody shares something with you, and you kind of have this thought, but you just say, I'll pray for you. Well, maybe, you sh- maybe the Lord's prompting you, pray for the person right now instead of promising to do it later and then maybe forgetting. Maybe it's just taking a minute or two to thank your spouse for something they did instead of just checking the sports score again or flipping the channel again. There's all kinds of little ways the Spirit could be calling us to show the kind of love that we ought to show And if we're faithful in those little things, those become the building blocks of bigger things and bigger things. We're not going to do heroic acts of love if we're not even doing simple little everyday things like that. So let those little half-formed thoughts that probably are promptings from the Holy Spirit actually turn into fully formed thoughts and actually act on them and pray for the sensitivity to do so. One more thing. Don't undermine the good work the Spirit begins to do in your life by constantly drawing attention to it. To use Paul's words, don't be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. To use Jesus' words from his famous sermon, don't blow a trumpet every time you give a little money to the poor. To translate into a modern idiom, you don't need to put it on social media every time you crack open your Bible, every time you have coffee with somebody, every time you serve in church. You don't, you don't need to do that. You don't need to work it into every conversation that you have. Your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you. I know this doesn't apply to all of us equally, but I also know that social media isn't just a young person thing either. There's plenty of middle-aged people, plenty of even senior-aged people that use social media 
on a regular basis. And there are other ways beyond that that you can draw attention to the good things you're doing. Right? You can just do the good things that the Spirit is prompting you to do out of love for God and out of love for your neighbor. And you don't have to broadcast it to the whole wide world. Right? That might be undermining the work that the Spirit is trying to do in your life. That might be even letting a worse sin in through the back door, even in the midst of doing a good thing. Pray hard, because you don't have it in you to love this way. You need the love of Christ working in you. Pray for that. Pray for more of that. Pray that that transplantation happens more completely and more fully. Cultivate sensitivity to the Spirit's leading, because there are probably opportunities all around you every single day that you could fulfill this command to love, to love the Lord, to love your neighbor, right? We don't have to go looking for great and grand things. There are things all around us every day, and the Spirit's probably prompting us to get to work on some of them. And finally, don't undermine what the Spirit is doing by letting boasting, or self-centeredness, look at me, look at me, in through the back door. So let's go do it. I hope we can go away from here with just one or two concrete things in mind where we can apply this. I bet we can all think of some, some situations in our lives, maybe something that happened this week, maybe the Lord's, maybe the Lord's forming some of those little half-formed thoughts in your mind already, instead of just batting those away, preferring not to listen, let, let that happen. Some situation, relationship, where the, the results, the, the fruit, maybe a little less than satisfactory. However, with the Spirit's transplanting, transforming, empowering presence in our lives, we can begin to see the results, the fruit that he longs for and that we long for ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a good and faithful God and that even though we do not have it in us to love in, in the way that Scripture calls us to, and we, when we look at this passage and we see the extent of, of the kind of love you call us to. We, we can only say that there was only one who ever loved that way, and that was the Lord Jesus, not us. And at the same time, we know that your word promises, um, and the gospel tells us that that's the whole point, that the love, the righteousness, the all that is Jesus's can be ours because of what he did for us, because we, what we've just finished celebrating just a few weeks back when we looked at his death and his resurrection and the, the glorious and even scandalous exchange that that is, that we get to lay down our, our sin and our brokenness and our failings at the cross and we get to take the righteousness of Christ, the love of Christ, all that it is his in exchange for that. That's glorious, Lord. And so we, we simply ask that 
that love would be more and more of a reality in our lives. That, that all that is ours in Christ would come to be more of a reality in day-to-day walking, living, doing, caring for one another, living our lives. We pray that that, that transplanting work of the Spirit in our lives would take root, would grow. Pray that you would show us the opportunities that are before us. There are likely so many opportunities, even throughout an average day. May we be sensitive, Lord, to those little promptings of your Spirit. We should care for that person. We should ask about how they're doing. We should offer to pray for them. All these, all these ways that we could love. And may we see those effects in our lives. May we see more and more Christ-likeness of all the things we can pray for, Lord. We pray for that, for Christ-likeness in our lives as individuals, in our lives as a church family. And so as we prepare to go from this place, will we go uh, with that promise and with that assurance um, that your Spirit goes with us and will lead us in the way that we should go. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.